Have you ever encountered people who are skeptical about the existence of God? People who are even critical about the claims and teachings of the Bible? I wonder, how have you interacted with people like that? Now, we should remember that it's not just what we say that's important. It's also important how we say it and when we say it. But to focus on the what for a moment, what should you say to people who are skeptical skeptical or critical? Well, in large part, it will depend on the person that you're talking to and how well you know him or her. But maybe you would refer to a classic argument about the existence of God. Philosophers and theologians boil it down to four different arguments. There's the cosmological argument, which starts with the cosmos around us, which basically says that it's logical for the world to have a beginning and a first cause. There's the teleological argument, which starts with the telos around us, purpose or beauty, the intricacy of all that we see, and deduces from that that there must be an intelligent design behind it all. There's the ontological argument, which starts with knowledge. It says that if we have a conception of God, a being that is greater than all others, then God must exist because if there is anything greater than him, then he would be God. This one's a little bit deeper. There's the moral argument, which says that we we observe that people have a conscience, some sense of right and wrong, a fear of death. And because of that, there must be a supreme universal lawgiver. These are the classic arguments for the existence of God. Now, I'm not asking you to memorize all those things because in part, I think those arguments might push the ball down the field, but I don't know if any of them will get you in the end zone. All of these arguments remind me of something a British pastor named Dick Lucas said. It's something that our passage from John 7 reflects as well. He said this, the Bible doesn't give us a watertight argument. It gives us a watertight person against whom there is no argument. While John 7, 25 to 36, isn't first instructions about how you and I deal with skeptics and critics. In this passage, Jesus deals with skeptics and critics. And the main point of it, we could summarize it like this, that no amount of skepticism, no amount of criticism overcomes the truth about him, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God sent by the father to save sinners. So follow along as I read John 7, 25 to 36. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the chapter numbers are the big, not big, bold numbers uh, on your page, and the verse numbers are the little numbers behind that. After I'm done reading, I'll say something like, this is God's word. If you agree that this is God's gift to us, would you join me to say, thanks be to God. Some of the people at Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. 
Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. The central controversy in this passage is the identity of Jesus and how people respond to him. Who is Jesus? Do people accept him or reject him? These are critical questions that you and I must answer as well. And as people question and resist Jesus, he stands firmly on the truth about himself. So today, we want to know this watertight person more deeply. And we want to rest and rejoice in the life that we have in his name. Now, our passage covers two cycles of resistance to Jesus. They roughly correspond to the two paragraphs that you see printed in the Bible. And these two cycles follow the same pattern. It starts with people questioning or opposing Jesus. Then Jesus responds. Then there's some kind of fallout. This is the cycle. The first one of these spans from verse 25 to verse 31. So let's take a look at the beginning of this cycle. It begins with questioning from people. Now to remind you, again, each week we try to bring ourselves up to speed with where we are in the Gospel of John. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of, the, of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we remember that his brothers wanted him to go to this feast and put on a big show, likely because Jesus had just lost some so-called disciples and his brothers want him to reclaim in the, the hearts of the masses. So Jesus knew that this wasn't his heavenly father's plan. Jesus also knew that people in Jerusalem wanted to kill him. And so for now, Jesus skips the big entrance to Jerusalem, but he's still the talk of the town. People there in the city mutter different opinions about him. And yet the people there were scared to speak openly about Jesus because of the mounting resistance against him. So in this setting of confusion and chaos, Jesus opens his mouth and speaks in the temple. And he defends himself against the charge that he broke the Sabbath law. And he was charged this when he healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day. This was back in John chapter 5. Jesus shows not only that the people had a faulty understanding of God's word and what God said about the Sabbath. Jesus also shows them that they really should have rejoiced when he healed this man. Because Jesus is the one who the Sabbath pointed to. This was a day of peace and rest. And Jesus is the one who gives us ultimate, eternal peace and rest with God. Now, this is where we still are in the temple as we come to verse 25. The people of Jerusalem listen to Jesus teach and they have questions. And their questions really aren't questions they're looking to get answers to. They're questions that show that they're surprised. They listen to Jesus teach and Jesus surprises them. They ask, is not this the man they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. Now, back in verse 20 of chapter 7, other people in the temple listen to Jesus, and they listen to him say, there are people out there who are seeking to kill me. And they tell Jesus, what are you talking about? You must be demon-possessed. The people here in verse 25 don't make that same conclusion, do they? These people know better. John notes for us that this group of people is from Jerusalem. So maybe because they lived in the capital city, they could see the highest authorities up up close and personal, and they would have a more accurate view of the situation. 
So when they hear Jesus talk about this plot of people trying to kill him, well, they know Jesus is right and they believe him. Yeah, there is a plot to kill Jesus. And yet look at what Jesus is doing. He teaches publicly in the most prominent place in all of Israel. It'd be like America's most wanted fugitive holding a press conference right outside the White House. Well, like we noticed last week, the authorities might scare people into silence, but they don't scare Jesus into silence. Jesus entrusts himself to his heavenly father's plan and his heavenly father's care. Jesus has no need to fear what people may do to him. And as Jesus speaks openly, it seems to surprise and maybe even impress the people of Jerusalem who are listening. And I think we can tack on to the small list that we started last week. Last week, we noticed that Jesus's brothers showed us that proximity to Jesus doesn't equal belief in Jesus. The crowd who had a good opinion about Jesus, who said he's a good man, we said from them that politeness about Jesus doesn't equal belief in Jesus. Well, right here, John 7, 25 and following, the people of Jerusalem show us that even being impressed with Jesus does not equal true belief in Jesus. I think about how the demons interact with Jesus each time they encounter him. Demons are theologically orthodox. They know the truth about Jesus. They acknowledge his power. And yet still demons rebel against him and refuse to submit to him and trust in him. Being impressed with Jesus does not necessarily equal true belief in Jesus. Well, the people, they have questions and their questions reveal their surprise. Jesus surprises them. Their questions also reveal that the authorities surprise them. Look at what they ask at the end of verse 26. They ask, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? These people recognize an inconsistency. The authorities, they talk a big talk. A big talk about not liking Jesus, a big talk about wanting to arrest him, a big talk about even wanting to kill him. But what happens with their walk? They may talk a big talk, but they do not walk a big walk. When it comes to to talking, they're loud. When it comes to doing, they're very quiet. So what gives? What explains this inconsistency? Well, the people wonder if the authorities talk bad about Jesus, but secretly think that Jesus is the Christ. Now, just a quick reminder, I've said this before, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's the Greek word for Messiah, which means anointed one, even a little bit more precise, it's God's anointed king. Now, for the people of Jerusalem, they might have a wrong explanation for why the authorities didn't do anything about Jesus. That that explanation is wrong. The authorities, no, they, they don't think that Jesus is the Christ. But I think these people in Jerusalem have their finger on the pulse of the authority's motivation. They might not get their explanation right, but I think they have their finger on the pulse of their motivation. The authorities didn't do anything about Jesus, at least at this point, because they would never do anything that risks losing the people's approval. That's always their motivation throughout all the gospels. Matthew 21, verse 46 states it clearly. The next time Jesus will be in a temple in Jerusalem, it says this, although they were seeking to arrest him, the authorities feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. 
This is the motivation behind their inconsistency, that they'll talk a big talk, but they won't walk a big walk. They crave the approval and the, and the power that the crowds give them. They share the same motivation as one French revolution leader who said this, there go the people, I must follow them for I am their leader. I bet you can spot this motivation everywhere in different political leaders and, and different church leaders. Jesus describes this motivation in John chapter 12, verse 43. He explains it like this, their motive, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is why they, they won't risk their necks. Now, one author asks a question about this motivation. Why would you love the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God? Why would you choose the approval of mere creatures over the, the approval of the Almighty? Well, it must be because they preferred the glory of men because God was not sufficiently glorious in their eyes. They prefer the glory of men because God is not sufficiently glorious in their eyes. I don't know if there's a more accurate diagnosis of what's wrong with the church broadly right now. It captures why those who profess to love God are inconsistent to live out their love for God. Because when God becomes small to you, other things become bigger than they actually are. When God becomes small and dim and uninteresting, other things grow bigger and more important. Things like politics or power or pleasure. So the people in Jerusalem can see that Jesus is better than others give him credit for. They can also see that the authorities are worse than others give them credit for. But that doesn't lead them to faith in Jesus. Look at verse 27. They say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. I think these people in Jerusalem, they ask questions where they should have made statements and they make a statement where they should have asked a question. They're uncertain about what they should be certain about and they're certain about what they should be uncertain about. Not too long ago, I remember asking someone to read scripture for us during the service. Thank you for those who say yes to, to that request. Uh, but the question and response that I got was, was a legitimate one. The, uh, the person asked me, well, are there any tricky names in the passage? <laughs> someone else overheard our conversation. Um, so, and uh, she said, gave very wise advice. If you come across a name that you don't know how to pronounce, like Meher Shala Hashbaz in Isaiah 8, verse 1. <laughs> Just follow the advice that I've heard before, wrong and strong. <laughs> now, that might be good advice for reading the Bible in public. It's bad advice for what you believe personally. The people of Jerusalem might be strong in their view that people won't know where the Christ will come from. But they are wrong in this view. Their wrong and strong view might have come from a place like Malachi 3, verse 1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is ultimately fulfilled by John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, good students of the Bible don't build entire views based on one verse without comparing it to other parts of the Bible. 
The Bible interprets itself. The Messiah might come on the scene unexpectedly, but Micah 5 verse 2, which we read earlier, is clear that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So here's where the rubber might hit the road for you and me. If there's anybody here who is skeptical about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's done, even if you know people like that, I would encourage you, don't be like this group of people in John 7 verse 27. Don't hear me saying this. It's not that we are discouraging you to ask questions. It's not that we're discouraging you to take time to process. We are encouraging you to do that honestly. Encouraging you to examine your assumptions about God. Examine your assumptions about Jesus and the Bible and Christians. We're encouraging you to check your sources, to see where those assumptions come from, to lay them on the table and let Jesus speak for himself from his word. And as you look at the Bible and interact with Christians, do so honestly, not lazily. This group of people here in John 7 were lazy. They came from the nation that arguably had the most scrupulous family records in the world. They just know that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. If they wanted to find out that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it wouldn't have been hard. They just needed to dig a little. My friend, don't settle for common surface level objections to Jesus. He's too important. You need to dig a little. While we're going in this resistance cycle, it starts with questioning from people. The next part of the cycle is Jesus's response in verses 28 to 29. It says, so Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Now look closer at verse 28. We might read that as a concession from Jesus. We might read that in, in, like Jesus saying, okay guys, I guess you got me. Your wrong view is actually right. I guess the charade is over. But I think what he's really saying is something closer to this, that you guys think you know all about me, but you don't. You think you know where I come from, but you don't know who I come from. And if you did, then you would accept me. Jesus tells them that his origin story is far greater than they realize. It goes back further than Nazareth. It goes back further than Bethlehem. It goes back to heaven and to be precise, Jesus has no origin. He has no beginning. He has always existed alongside God the Father. John spelled out that truth for us back in chapter one. Remember chapter one, verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is how Jesus can tell them as he's told them before. He says, guys, I am no inventive startup. Back in verse 16 of chapter seven, Jesus said that my teaching is not my own, but my father's. So here in this part of chapter seven, Jesus tells them my mission is not my own. It's my father's. I think this is a good lesson for us, especially as Christians, because if we're not careful, we might play good cop, bad cop with God, the father and God, the son. We might think of God the Father as more of this angry, ogre, grumpy grandfather type figure, and Jesus the Son as the kind, reasonable one. But Jesus' mission, as he tells us here, wasn't a covert operation kept secret from the Father. 
Jesus' mission was designed by the Father. I mean, just remember the verse everybody here knows, John 3.16. How does it start? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God the Father's heart put our salvation into motion. God the Son accomplished it. God the Spirit applied it to our hearts. Jesus' origin story is so much greater than they realize. He has always existed alongside God the Father. This is how he could say to them, the Father sent me. This is also how he could say to them that I know the Father. Jesus knows the Father like no one else does. While Jesus is distinct from the Father, he is so connected to the Father that he will later tell his disciple Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The people question Jesus being the Christ because of a bad assumption based on faulty information. So Jesus clarifies. He is the one who has always existed alongside the Father, who has been sent by the Father, and who knows the Father like no one else. As Jesus clarifies about himself, he turns the tables, and he also clarifies about those questioning him. Look at what he plainly tells them. He says, him, that is the Father, you do not know. He tells people who talk a big talk about knowing God, you don't know God. And he uses the same logic that he's used before, that he's used with others who reject him but claim to know God. If they really knew God, well, then they would recognize God in Jesus. Here is the one who embodies all that God is from his character to his ability, and yet they deny him. That must mean they don't really know God himself. If they don't know the Father who sent him, how can they be expected to know the Christ whom the Father sent? Now, rubber hits the road again. I bet you talk with people all the time who tell you that they believe in God. But do you want to know if they believe in the true God? Well, what do you think about God's Son, the one through whom God has perfectly revealed himself? The Apostle John will write clearly in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. He says this, it's black and white. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, as you might imagine, Jesus' response, he asserts the truth about himself. He asserts the truth about them that ruffles some feathers. There is fallout from it. This is the last stage of this resistance cycle. On the one hand, the fallout looks like people going from questioning Jesus to people seeking to arrest Jesus. Right? This happens in verse 30. Now, it's, it's not clear whether or not these people actually have authority to arrest Jesus, but it is clear that they don't have the power to arrest Jesus. They fail to do it. In fact, what does the verse say? It says they, they can't even lay a hand on Jesus. They're prevented. John tells us it's because his hour had not yet come. It's a way of saying they're prevented from doing this because it's not, it's not part of God's timing. It's, out, it's not part of God's control. I just want to slow down for a moment and focus on this explanation. Just briefly, those words at the end of verse 30. Because his hour had not yet come. This is helpfully clarifying for us. Nothing about Jesus' life and death was ever out of control. It all happened according to God's plan. 
So that means if anyone did lay a hand on Jesus, it wouldn't be because they found a loophole or overcame God's plan. It would have been because the father permitted it to be part of his plan. Brother and sister, you and I are meant to receive comfort from this same truth. Nothing about your life or your death is out of control. There is nothing that can happen to you apart from the plan and permission of your wise, good, and loving father. Nothing. I reflected on this this past week. I had one day of the week. It was Thursday. That was just a day that I totally did not expect. My dad ended up in the hospital. I, he's okay now. He's here with us now. You can talk to him about it afterwards. But, and, and it was a day that totally did not go according to plan. And it just so happened, this is how the Lord works, that I read Psalm 139 that morning. And I came across verse 16. The craziest day of the week, David writes, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me before they happened. God knows each one of our days. Our times are in his hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from the permission and plan of your wise, good, and loving father. Now, I want to just give a little bit of nuance to that. We should say that just because God has permitted a situation in your life doesn't mean that you should always stay in that situation in your life. The Bible tells slaves of the day that they can get their freedom if they have opportunity. The Bible tells spouses who are cheated on and abandoned and abused that they can get out of their marriage. The point that we're making is that there are hard things in our lives that we have no idea why God has permitted them in his plan. We don't get to see things from his perspective, but we are assured of God's power and we are assured of God's heart. Your inner peace, your hope can be upheld by these two truths that God is sovereign and God is good. And we see those beautiful truths on display in just that simple phrase, because his hour had not yet come. No one laid a hand on him. His hour refers to his death. His death reminds us that God has a plan and God loves us. So you might not know why God has permitted that pain and suffering in your life, but we can look at the cross and remember God is sovereign and God is good. Well, there is another type of fallout from what Jesus says. On the one hand, there are those who seek to arrest him. On the other hand, there are those who believe in him. The people of verse 31, they expect God to keep his promise and send his anointed king to save his people. And maybe these people remember a promise that a prophet would arise that's greater than Moses. And they, maybe they remember that God did many signs through Moses, whether it's the plagues or the parting of the Red Sea or giving the manna or giving water in the wilderness. And here is Jesus in front of them doing more signs than Moses did. Now, back in John 2, 23, Jesus says the kind of faith that believes based only on signs, that that kind of faith is shaky. But later in John 10, verse 38, Jesus says the signs he did are a reason to believe in him. So I think here in John 7, verse 31, we have no reason to think that their faith is insincere. Let's, Let's just take a step back at the end of this cycle. Take a look at the big picture. Jesus has claimed for himself oneness with the Father, to know him uniquely, to be sent by him. This is a huge claim. This is such a huge claim, as one author says, that if it's false, if this claim is false, then Jesus is guilty of such blasphemy that no one has ever dared to utter. But if this claim is true, then Jesus can be described in no other terms than the Son of God. His claim is too big. 
Either we must reject him absolutely or accept him fully. And this brings us to the second resistance cycle, starting in verse 32. It begins not with innocent questioning, but deliberate resisting. The chief priests and the Pharisees fall on the side of absolute rejection. But again, verse 32 shows us their true motivation. It's not that the chief priests and the Pharisees heard and considered the claim of Jesus and that's what led them to reject him. No, no, they couldn't care less of whether or not his claim was true. What the chief priests and the Pharisees cared about was losing the crowds. So notice, when did they enact their plot to arrest Jesus? When did they start doing that? It's when they heard people muttering about Jesus, presumably muttering that Jesus is the Christ. So these guys cared so much about losing the crowds that they teamed up with one another to arrest Jesus. Now, the chief priests would have mainly been composed of Sadducees, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees hated each other. They're like the Bloods and the Crips, basically. (laughs) But as many have said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they team up and send the temple guard to arrest Jesus. And that brings us to the second part of the cycle, Jesus's response. John doesn't tell us what happens with this temple guard all the way until verse 45, we're left hanging. But Jesus seems to know about the plot to arrest him. Verse 33 starts by saying, Jesus then said, seems to be in response to this plot to arrest him. So whereas Jesus previously focused on his origin, here Jesus focuses on his destination. Look at what he says in verse 33. He says, I am going to him who sent me. As Jesus has been sent by the Father, so he will return to the Father. The first refers to what people call the incarnation. The second refers to what people call the ascension. And like Jesus' previous response, he begins by asserting the truth about himself. And look again at verses 33 and 34. Jesus speaking. Just read them to yourself. And how would you describe Jesus's tone in his response? Remember his situation. Here here he is around people who are questioning him, people who are opposing him, people even seeking to arrest him. And yet, do you notice There is no panic from Jesus. There is only confidence. He says, I am going to him who sent me. Confidence that he will accomplish the mission his father has sent him to do. He will be the perfect sacrifice for sinners who repent of their sin and trust in him. And he will do more than accomplish that work. His confidence, it says that he will return to the Father. That implies that the Father will accept his work. And the Father shows that he accepted his son's sacrifice by raising him from the dead. So my fellow Christ follower, I wonder how this tone could impact you and how you deal and interact with the world around you. I wonder if you look at the state of the world around you and and you're disappointed. Maybe you look at the state of the world around you and you're even disgusted you look at the state of the world around you and you're discouraged. Well, if you have reasons to feel this way, oh my goodness, the son of God had way more reasons than you to feel this way. But consider how he responds. Look at Jesus's demeanor and look at his focus. Jesus's demeanor isn't one of panic or self-pity. It's confidence. Confidence. 
Jesus' focus isn't earthly, it's heavenly. He is our model. Hebrews 12, 2 puts it like this. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So like his first response in the previous cycle, Jesus asserts the truth about himself, and then he tells the truth about those rejecting him. Verse 34, he tells them, you will seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Friends, Jesus' warning rings just as true now as it did then. So let me be humbly direct so I don't risk being misunderstood. Not everyone is going to heaven. And the only way you could stand before God's presence and not be condemned is if someone is condemned in your place. The only one who has and who can bear the weight of that condemnation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Trust in him, follow him, and what you deserve will go to him and what he deserves will go to you. The only way you can be where he is in heaven is if you believe in him while you're still on earth. Jesus tells you that there will be a time when it's too late to take hold of him by faith. He is honest about the urgency of the matter. So maybe you or someone you know is still in the process that we talked about earlier, the process of examining your questions, the process about taking your time to examine honestly. Again, I don't want to discourage that. But I also want to humbly warn about the danger that comes with that. You see, continual questions might just be your way to delay what you don't want to do. You don't want to admit your helplessness. You don't want to forsake your way of living. You don't want to submit your life to one who is greater than you. My friend, be warned. One day, it will be too late to go to Jesus. But for those who have gone to Jesus, he speaks very different words to you than he does in verse 34. Jesus tells you in John 14 not to let your hearts be troubled. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Now, this might not be your constant perspective, but if you think about it, each one of us is one more day closer to our death. I know we might, not to think, we might not like to think like that, but it's true. And maybe for some of us, that reality is more in front of us than ever before. Now, friends, it's natural not to want to die. But let's look at the prospect of our death the way that our Lord looks at it. Not as the end, but as the beginning of glory. Now, as with the previous cycle, there is fallout to Jesus' statement where he tells the truth about himself and the truth about them. Now, this time, the fallout isn't confrontation, it's confusion. They don't understand. They literally ask in verse 36, what does Jesus mean by all of this? They try to grasp at one explanation. The explanation fits the pattern we've noticed in John, that they are stuck on the earthly when Jesus actually speaks of the heavenly When they hear Jesus say that he'll go to a place that they can't come to, they think he's talking about going beyond Israel. 
Now, just to unpack a little bit of the background of what they're talking about, when the Jews were exiled from the land of Israel, they were dispersed throughout the Middle East and Mediterranean world. Although they were given an opportunity to return to Israel, not all of them did. So thus there were Jewish people dispersed around the known world. And before the Roman Empire, most of the known world was conquered by the Greeks. That's why Greek was the common language of the day. That's why even the New Testament was written in Greek. But here, just like there was misunderstanding about his origin, so there was misunderstanding about his destination. They must think that going to the Jews and Greeks beyond Israel was beneath the task of the Messiah. Because their version of the Messiah would have sole interest in liberating Israel from the Roman Empire. But Jesus, the true Messiah, liberates those from every tribe, tongue, and nation from sin, not just from Rome. The chief priests and the Pharisees would soon get to arrest Jesus. But by doing this, they thought that they would finally squash Jesus's influence. But the amazing divine irony is that through the squashing of his son, God spreads the good news of his son. That after Jesus dies, rises again, and ascends to heaven, news about him spreads from Israel to throughout the Roman Empire. And even when you read the book of Acts, it spreads in the exact ways that the authorities mocked. The apostles take the gospel first to the synagogues and then to the Greeks beyond it. The foolishness of men is the wisdom and power of God. And this brings us full circle back to our original point. Friends, stand firm. No amount of criticism, no amount of skepticism will overcome the truth about him. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, sent by the Father to save sinners. Let's pray. Oh Lord, oh the, oh the depths of, the, of your wisdom and your power. All things are to you and from you and through you. God, we, we ask that you would help us to be confident. Lord, that you would give us your demeanor and your focus. That we would be confident in Jesus, the Son of God. That we would know uh, that we have been rescued by him and that he will return. And Lord, when we are disappointed and discouraged and dismayed by the world around us, would we remember him? Would we remember the cross? Would you remind us that you are in control, you have a plan, nothing can thwart it, and that you love us? Sustain us in this way, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.